0: Good morning, everyone, again. It is nice to be here, uh, and thank you for the opportunity to come and to to preach, Uh, and probably the congregation at St Martin's will be thanking you for the opportunity to have someone else in the pulpit as well. But it is good to be here. It's been quite a few years since I've been here, and uh, I I was just saying before the service I was speaking to David that uh, what... I like to have continuity in the service and so because I've got two churches I try and do a preaching plan and so a sense that we have a program to follow and obviously you do the same here at Linfield so I thank the elders for the, the challenge to look because at the moment you're looking at, at unity and, and church working together and so I picked this passage from Romans 14 which was one of the texts that was suggested and uh, the theme is harmony. There's a story told that when the British and French were fighting in Canada in the 1750s, the commander of the British Navy, an Admiral Phipps, was ordered to anchor up outside of Quebec and wait for the British forces to arrive in order that he could support their attack on the city. Phipps arrived early, but as he waited for troops, he became annoyed at all the Statue of the state Saints that adorned the towers of the nearby cathedral. So he commanded his men to fire the ship's cannons at these statues. Now there's no record kept of how many rounds were fired or how many statues were knocked down, but when the land forces did arrive and the signal to attack did come, the Admiral was of no help at all, because he had used all his ammunition shooting at the saints. And perhaps that's true of many churches. We tend to use all our ammunition shooting at the saints. I tell that story because it could be suggested that perhaps some could be said, the same could be said of the Christians today. When God calls us to do something, great when God calls us to do something great for Him, we have nothing left to give because we have used up all our energy shooting at the saints. There was a recent newspaper article which showed some pictures of a gang of thieves stealing from someone at the cash point. And the tactic was for a small group of these these thieves to cause a distraction with the people at the cash point. And while the victims were being distracted the second group came in and stole the card or the handbag or even the money from the machine itself. And when you think about it, that's the kind of strategy that the devil often uses in churches. We are seduced into paying attention to distractions while the devil ransacks the church, resulting in loss of mission and vision. And in, this, in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, we read, live in harmony with one another. Now, of course, that's a lot easier said than done. We all know that we should live in harmony. And we all know that, sadly, if we're being honest, there's usually two points of view. Our point of view and the wrong one. And many people might suggest that it's almost impossible today when so many controversial issues surround us and so many controversial issues divide us. It's almost impossible to live in harmony. But as we see in the reading from Romans 14 that Paul wrote to the the letter to Romans, Paul gives us some practical steps to live in harmony. And perhaps it's encouraging to see that there is nothing new under the sun. Just as we have had disputes today in the church, so in Paul's time, the church was divided by disputes and arguments. The Roman church wasn't divided in their faith. They all believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. They all believed that Jesus was the only way to heaven. They all believed that only there was only one God and that Jesus was the son of God. And they believed that Jesus died for their sins and that he rose again on the third day. But they were divided on a lot of other issue, issues. Probably non-essential issues. So Paul gives them a seven-step program to follow, which is harmony. Harmony. H, hold back on disputable matters. We read that in verse 1. Now, immediately you'll be thinking to yourself, well, what is a disputable matter? Well, the quick answer, and I know we could spend the whole day just looking at this one, but the quick answer would be an issue where Scripture is not clear. And in Romans 14, Paul is talking about dates and diets. Some held to dietary rules like not eating meat. Others were disputing about the frequency of meeting and particularly the frequency of communion styles or or of clothing. I come from a tradition in Scotland where communion was only celebrated four times a year. And there was a communion season where the week before was called Preparatory Sunday and uh, the elders would be going out the week before communion to hand out communion cards. In the old days it used to be tokens and you had to have your communion card to be able to take communion. Now, in tradition in the United Reformed Church, we have communion monthly. Some would like communion on a weekly basis. But there's nothing in scripture to say how often you should have it. It's a matter of choice, perhaps. There was dispute, perhaps maybe another disputable would be styles of clothing or of music. Now, I don't know what things are like at Linfield, but I know in my churches at times there have been conflict about the style of hymns that we have, whether they should be modern or whether they should be traditional, whether they should be guitar or, or organ. They're dis- Disputable matters because there's nothing scriptural as to how we should be doing it. All examples of issues that are non-essential to Christian faith. When it comes to styles, you don't have to like it, listen to it, or look like it. But you cannot judge it. You don't have to support it but you shouldn't condemn it. If scripture doesn't speak clearly on an issue, it's because God has given us freedom to choose. A, avoid looking down on those who don't share your convictions. And we see that in verses two to four of the passage. The one who is strong in faith and therefore understands that they are free from legalistic constraints, shouldn't look down on those who don't believe that they have such freedom, but rather should support and encourage. R, yeah, R realise Realize that you must live for the Lord. In the final hole of the 1961 Masters at Augusta, Arnold Palmer had a one-stroke lead and had hit almost the perfect tee shot. And he felt that he was in a pretty good shape to win the competition. As he approached his ball, he saw an old friend in the gallery who motioned him over. And he stuck out his hand and said, ''Congratulations.'' Later, Arnold Palmer said, I took his hand and I shook it, but as soon as I did, I knew I had lost my focus. On the next two shots, he hit the ball into a bunker and then put it over the edge of the green, missed the putt and lost the Masters. You see, what he was saying was that Palmer was not on that golf course to renew old acquaintances, nor to accept the congratulations of old friends. Truthfully, his only purpose on that golf course should have been to put the ball in the hole in the fewest number of strokes. We're not on the earth for the purpose of exercising our freedom or even to adhere to strict religious convictions. We are here for one purpose only, to live for the Lord. Now, my mother up in schools in Glasgow, when they were, in, their, in my mother's time, used to have to learn the catechisms. And years later, my mom could still recite some of them. She forgot everything else, but she could recite them. And the first aim, the first catechism you should remember, was what, what what was man's chief aim? Does anyone know? To glorify God. Man's chief aim was to glorify God. That's our purpose in life. As Christians, our purpose in life is to serve and to glorify God. It's about pleasing God. And if we are more concerned about pleasing God than we are about pleasing other people, then we'll be fulfilling our purpose. And maybe that is sometimes where we get things wrong in the church. We are more concerned about pleasing community, more concerned about pleasing outsiders than we are about pleasing God. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. M make sure you don't put obstacles in the way of others. If the exercise of your freedom causes a fellow believer to violate, violate their conscience and sin, then you are a stumbling block. You are an obstacle to their faith. And as the, I have to confess, as, I was reading, as the passage was being read this morning, I couldn't help but think, on Easter Sunday... In Salt Dean, we have an early morning service. We try and have it down on the beach, uh, and we have bacon butties afterwards. And this year we had to have it in the hall because the weather wasn't very good. But it struck me as the passage was being read, what folks say is that that one of the the greatest struggles for vegetarians is to give up bacon. I don't know. Uh, But, you know, the smell of bacon is such an evocative smell, isn't it? Maybe there's a sense we'll have to try something else on on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, if there's someone who's trying to to be a vegetarian. I don't want to to drag someone back to to meat meat eating simply because they could smell bacon. Make sure you don't put obstacles in the way of others. Oh, only do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And see, all these things are common sense to a certain extent, but they're also far easier said than done. What is good is bad if it leads to disharmony and doesn't build up the church. In Romans 12, verse 18, Paul writes, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, <clears throat> excuse me, live at peace with everyone. We all know that in churches, so often, it can be the smallest thing that can cause the biggest dispute. As a young minister in my first charge, I had to chair a church meeting where the problem was the church clock. Now the church was quite a a small it's like a mission hut really and uh, one Sunday I came to church and discovered that there was a new clock. The only problem was that the clock wasn't where you had your clock the clock was over here behind the minister so the only person that couldn't see it was the minister. Now it didn't bother me so much but the next church meeting, there was this major debate about this clock. Where did it come from? It looked as if we were washing a clock now because there was a text on the wall as well and this clock was just below the text. And this clock should be moved. It seemed silly that the only person that couldn't see it was the only person that should see it and that was the minister. And I think that was probably a hint for me to try and be a bit shorter. I don't know. But we had this, this debate it might be hard to believe, lasted for about half an hour. And they get stronger and stronger. And eventually, the session clerk, uh, which is the equivalent of a church secretary, said, if that clock has moved one inch, I'll retire, I'll resign. At this point, a very wise treasurer who was sitting next to me just nodded to me and said, look, tell you what, Graham, what we'll do is this. You and I will come down tomorrow and we'll move the clock one inch. And then we'll come down the next week and we'll move it another inch. <laughs> and by about six months' time, the clock will be where we want it to be. But nobody will have noticed it's moved. <laughs> we didn't do that. And in the end, the clock stayed. Only do what leaves to peace a mutual edification as far as it depends on you. and never publicize your personal convictions. Now there's a hard one. Never publicize your personal convictions. We did that near the end of chapter 14. Why not? Well quite simply because the, the answer is in the statement. Because that's what they are. They are just your personal convictions. Finally, why? Yield preferences, personal preferences for the common good. And I have to say, I I cheated for the why, because this is actually in chapter 15. Uh, But there's a continuity from 14 into chapters 15. So if you've got some time, read chapter 15, the first seven verses. What Paul is saying here is that we shouldn't insist on doing things our way. Insisting on doing things my way is the world's way, not the Christian way. We know from Scripture that it was not Jesus' personal preference to suffer and die on the cross. Perhaps some of the most powerful words in the New Testament are the words of Jesus as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when we're told he is praying to his Father in heaven and he is so racked that he sweats blood. And he says and he prays to his Father, Father, if it be possible, take this cup of suffering from me. It wasn't Jesus' way to die on the cross. If it's possible, take this cup of suffering from me. But then he goes on to say, but not my will, but yours be done. He followed his father and completed his mission. Personal preferences yield personal preferences for the common good. In the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters below. And when an investigation into the collision took place, it was revealed that the cause of the accident was not a technological problem. It wasn't that the radar had failed It wasn't a problem because of thick fog. So it wasn't a climactic problem, a weather problem. The cause of the accident was human stubbornness. Because each captain was aware of the other ship's presence. And both could have stayed clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first. And by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. They couldn't avoid the collision. And hundreds of lives were lost. How many churches do we know have crashed because of people being unwilling to yield? Being stubborn in their preferences? Yield personal preferences for the common good. It may not be your style of worship. It may not be your preference, but if it's something that's building up the church, let's give thanks to God. We have someone who's started to come to St. Martin's who stopped going to church for years. She moved into Salt Bean, She started to come to our church. And at a Bible study recently, she was saying she remembers when, when she was younger, she went to church with her mum. And her mum came home in tears that day because a group of the women got together and took her aside after the service. And she said, you know, we weren't a a very well-to-do family. We didn't, you know, money was tight. And the woman complained to mum because she wasn't wearing gloves and a hat. And she didn't wear gloves and a hat because she couldn't afford gloves and a hat. Now, that may seem silly to us, but in the... The 50s and 60s, that was the style of that church. And she said, mum never went back to church. And it took me a while to get back. Yield personal preferences for the common good. What does it matter what someone wears to come to church? Let's give thanks to God that folk are coming to church and they're hearing the message and they're being brought up and they're learning the good news of the gospel. How many churches have crashed because of people being unwilling to yield their opinion? How many disputes are there in the church because someone has to have things their way? Harmony. That's the secret, I guess, of church life. That's the secret of unity, working together together yes we we have different ideas, and we have different voices, but isn 't that harmony? voices coming together, sharing we're all different as the, the song the hymns were singing earlier. we 're all different, but together, we can work. One of the great things that I just find fascinating uh, my my church my first church in Scotland was on in the Isher. and uh, you drive along the fields and you come along to these what they call in Scotland, I think they call it in uh, Yorkshire as well, dry-stained dykes. I'm sure you know, these walls that have lasted for sometimes hundreds of years that are just brought together, put together, not with cement, or, but with just stones being fitted together. All different shapes and sizes, skillfully put together by the craftsmen to provide a, a lasting uh, monument, a lasting wall. And surely that's what it's saying, you know, that's what it should be like in the church. In First Peter it says about being built into a living temple, working together, acknowledging each other, working in harmony. I know it's a lot easier said than done, but let's work together for the glory of God, for that is man's chief end. And let's build the church up, remembering the seven steps to harmony.